Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Our God is great, worthy to be praised, right? And uh, that's true when we're singing, and it feels all good and fuzzy feeling, right? But it's also true when we open his book. It needs to be true when we open his book. And so we've been studying in 1 Corinthians, and one of the things I love about the Bible is that each of the epistles uh, that were written to the church, they provide us with different insight for our faith, different insight for living, living out this Christian life. Uh, and we need that insight. So when you think about a book like Romans, it's a, it's a declaration of what it means to know Christ, to be saved from the law. It's a, it's, many people refer to it as the constitution of the church age, right? But then when you get to a letter like 1 Corinthians, it's so very practical. Uh, and it provides us such detailed, um, simple information uh, that we just can't deny what it's saying. And sometimes that's really, it's actually kind of uncomfortable, as we learned last week when we talked about sex a bunch. No, I'm looking at all of you. Right? And uh, you can't avoid that. That's the thing about expository preaching is that is that when you're walking through the Word of God and you, you, you come in contact with information that maybe feels a little inconvenient for you in the moment, uh, it's true nonetheless. And it must be submitted to, and we have to receive it. And so uh, 1 Corinthians is very practical in that way. And, and last time we were together, we discussed specifically how to avoid fornication. And fornication uh, is simply the Bible's word for uh, any form of sex outside of marriage. Okay? And it provided us with some guiding principles from Scripture on what it looks like to deal with uh, our feelings of sexual lust and, and our desires uh, for sexual gratification. What do we do with that stuff? So we talked about that last week, and I'm not in any hurry to recap that. So if you want to hear about that, you need to go back and listen to the last sermon. But we ended that time together talking about marriage and the marriage relationship specifically. And how it's possible for someone, uh, we talked about this, someone to marry someone that they're spiritually incompatible with. Remember we talked about that somewhat last week when we were together. The idea that, that uh, sometimes, sometimes we are in life uh, tempted to have relationships with people that aren't necessarily healthy for us. And it's not incredibly uncommon for Christians who are on a trajectory of faith to find themselves attracted to someone who is, not, who is not good for them, right? Who's not on that same trajectory. And, and what happens when you marry that person, when you find yourself married to an individual who is not really like-minded, who does not have the same spiritual DNA as you? And that's a tough question. That's a tough question to grapple with. Well, Paul is going to tackle it for us today, and we're going to actually get a lot of principles uh, not just about marriage, but also about singleness and our relationships as single people as well. So here's the question for today's sermon. How do I deal with spiritual disparity in my marriage? Should be up there. Cue, cue the slide. 
How do I deal with spiritual disparity in my marriage or in my romantic relationships? Okay, or in romantic relationships. All right? And so even if you're not married, a lot of us... uh, (laughs) There we go. There we go. Uh, A lot of us desire to be married, right? Okay? You don't have to amen that. You can just amen that in your heart. A lot of us desire to be married, right? And in, in order to be married, I don't know if you know this, but you first have to be in a relationship with a person who's willing to be in a relationship with you. Okay? You got to get there first. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so what happens when you find yourself in, spirit, in, a, in a relationship where there's a spiritual disparity? Okay, let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. All right, you guys with me? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that your word is willing uh, to get into the nitty-gritty of our lives. Um, we, we live lives where people are constantly providing us with information on how to live. And we encounter people with really good advice. And, uh, and everybody in 2022 uh, wants to receive counseling. And they also want to give it. Everybody's got an opinion. But the problem with that, Lord, as you see it, is that so many of our opinions are just garbage. And they don't really give us freedom. They don't give us liberty. Uh, they keep us in bondage, in fact. And, uh, and so we, we strive to live uh, according to standards that are not for us. Uh, we compare ourselves to worldly lives that, that we see. And uh, we are a church that, because of a spiritual blindness and an inability to look to your word, we are a church that is compromised. We are a, a church that is secularized. And, and Satan has been effective at allowing the world's philosophies to affect the way that we do church and the way that we live, God forbid. So God, help us today uh, to get our minds set on your words. And uh, Lord, set us free by, by beginning to agree with you, uh, even if that means disagreeing with our previous presumptions, our preconceptions. So help us, Lord. Let your spirit be alive in us this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so the dynamics of marriage and singleness is part two. And last week, um, we, we said that there, if there was a subtitle for last week's sermon, it would be avoid fornication. If there's a, 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 a subtitle for this week's sermon, it's staying power, staying power. And that'll make more sense as we get there. Let's read together starting in verse six. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And unto unto the married I command yet, not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. And if she depart, let her remain unmarried, Or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. 
Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt leave thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Okay, so let's just, right up front, let's just acknowledge the fact that there's a lot here to cover. That's just 10 verses that we looked at. It seemed like 150. That's how much content is in there. There's so much to talk about. So we're going to start first with this idea of staying single, right? The subtitle for today's message is, is staying power. So let's talk about briefly about staying single. In verses 6 through 9, we learn that if a person is capable of remaining single for the sake of the mission, right? That has to be the underpinning there. That for the sake of the mission, if someone is able to stay single, they should. They should. And the Apostle Paul uses himself as the example. He says, look, because I'm not bound by marriage, I have the ability. I mean, we, we read Acts, didn't we? We studied Acts together. Look at what Paul was able to do in terms of travel and mission and engaging people and throwing his whole life into the calling of God upon him. Man, what a privilege it is to be single. Now, there's some of us in the room that are gifted towards singleness. If you're single right now, well, that means that you're probably gifted to be single, at least in this season. That doesn't mean that in the future things aren't going to change for you, but right now God's grace is upon you to be the single person that you need to be. Don't be in any hurry to force something to happen or make something happen or to create a relationship out of thin air. Trust the Lord that he's going to guide you and embrace the season that you're in. Be single and use every bit of that that you can for the sake of his glory. Amen? Amen. Verse 6 says, but I speak this by permission and not commandment, for I would that all men, even as I myself, okay, that they will be even as I am myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. And I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. We talked about that last week. Now, we're going to revisit this concept of singleness again, all right? Uh, the, this room is comprised primarily of single people, right? And so we need to make sure that we take some time to look at that. We will later on in the chapter. But I want to point out the fact that many people are called to remain single. And they're called to remain single for the mission's sake. Not, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in our world, though, that stay single. And they don't do it because of the mission, Right? You recognize that, right? That there's a lot of people in our world that choose to be single. We're not necessarily talking about Christians. There's a lot of people that choose to be single in our world because it's convenient for them to stay single, right? It's convenient for them. And, and for a lot of them, what they, what they see is that marriage is actually just kind of a mess. All the examples around them in their entire life have been of failed marriages. And so I don't want to put anybody on the spot. I'm going to raise my hand as well here. But how many of you come from divorced homes? Your parents were at some point divorced. Just show your hands so we can just get an idea. Okay? Yeah, it's okay. That was me, right? I came from a divorced home. I came from a broken marriage. And, and with that in mind, uh, it affected the way that I saw marriage, Right? Because I didn't get to watch my dad and my mom live out a healthy marriage, I had to learn it in faith as I went along. But there's a, a lot about marriage for, for many of us 
that is really scary because we don't want to end up in broken marriages. And it's the divorce rate that has really led our secular world to shun marriage completely. In fact, it's unpopular in the lost world to even get married, right? How do they treat a guy that's getting married, right? You and your clique, you know, your boys are hanging out all the time, you know, you're playing video games, you're playing, CO, uh, what is it, COD? Is that what you guys call it? <laughs> COD till two in the morning, right? I know you guys aren't watching old COD videos till two in the morning. All right, you're up late, you kick it, you, go, you know, guys go to the bars with their boys, right? There's the fraternity life, and then what do they say to a guy that's getting married, right? Like he's entering prison, right? So, real quick, John's here, so I'm going to tell this story, okay? I'm going to tell the story. When Havilah's when brother got married, okay, the bachelor party, Okay, the bachelor party's going on, Christian dudes, so it's kind of tame, right? <laughs> Lots of quasi-fermented Kool-Aid. <laughs> no, just kicking it, a bunch of guys hanging out. John, am I right? Am I going to tell the story right? That you, that you took <laughs> a bowling ball. That was at the wedding? That was at the wedding? <laughs> you are the worst kind of person. <laughs> so at the wedding... John takes a bowling ball with a handcuff on it, and he handcuffs Havilah's brother, Seth, to a bowling ball. Do they have to call the fire department to get it off? How did that end up? (laughs) Terrible. Thank God for what the Lord has done in your life, John. Um, But that's the, isn't that kind of the way the world sees marriage? Right, that somehow your life is ending, and so people are resistant to it. Okay, now bear with me here. The next section here is going to be about staying together, but I'm going to lay out some stuff for you that's going to help make sense of our resistance to marriage a little bit, okay? Divorce is such an incredibly common part of our culture anymore that for most people, it seems reasonable that if you grow tired of your relationship, or if you're no longer in love, that you simply get divorced and start over. Isn't that the common perception that if you're no longer in love, that if it's just not working out, it's not what you imagined it to be. It's getting too hard. That all you need to do is file for divorce and move on, and maybe you'll get married again or maybe not, but you're going to start over. That's, the, that's what people do. Among adults who have been married, the study, uh, the, the study by the, the Barner Report discovered that one-third, one-third of all married couples have experienced at least one divorce. That's a lot. And if, if you looked around the room a moment ago, all the hands that went up, that was probably about a third of our congregation here that have experienced divorce through their parents. So it's not a big surprise. The impact of divorce on our society is so great that people have just stopped getting married. According to American census data, since the start of the 21st century, the U.S. marriage rate has declined from more than, uh, from more than eight marriages per year per 1,000 people. Okay, imagine that. For, I know you guys don't like numbers. Okay, so hang with me here. Okay, it went from eight marriage, marriages per year, per 1,000 people, okay, to half that many. Or sorry, six, uh, three quarters that many. Yeah, I don't like numbers either. <laughs> six marriages per 1,000 popular, and that was in 2019. The marriage rate is the lowest since the U.S. government began keeping marriage records in 1867. 
So for 70 years, uh, uh, sorry, 70 years ago, a large majority of U.S. households, approximately 80%, were made up of married couples. In 2020, the proportion of households consisting of married couples has almost been cut in half to 49%. So people more than ever don't want to be tied down. They don't want to be. They're less concerned with having children. They're less concerned about establishing a heritage or a legacy through family. They like the freedom of singleness. They like the promiscuity of singleness. But ultimately, people don't trust themselves or others enough to be married. That's what it comes down to, is that we're afraid. We're a fearful people. We're an anxious people. You know that. You know that this is perhaps the most fearful and anxious generation of people that have, have, have ever been. I mean, that's what, that's what research shows. And so is it any surprise that people are afraid of getting married? They're, a, a, they're avert to it. They're avert to the, the commitment. In our secular world, divorce is always an option. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of, a, of an overarching concept, okay? In our, in our world today, Divorce is always an option. Now think about divorce, not just in terms of marriage, but divorce in terms of relationships, divorce in terms of church relationships and ministry, the church that you attend. People bounce around from church to church because they just get, they get tired of it, right? They get tired of it. They don't even know what they're looking for. But people are so quick to, to end relationships, end friendships, walk away, and then go simply do them somewhere else. Divorce is always an option in our culture, and it was in Corinth too. We know that in Roman society, and in, in Corinth specifically, that the decision to divorce was mutually acceptable for men and women. Both men and women in this culture, which was rare. In Jewish culture, that wasn't true, and you will see that here in a moment. In Jewish culture, it was a man's responsibility to instigate a divorce, but in Roman society, it was common for a man or woman to just simply say, you know what, it's been real. And they could, they, could start, they could start the procedure of divorce almost immediately. It was acceptable to do. If someone decided that they wanted to leave the relationship, they just did it. Now, in the Corinthian church, there would have certainly been people who had been divorced before. There were certainly married people. And a lot of the marriages that would have taken place in the Corinthian church would have taken place after someone had made a marriage commitment to someone else. So the concern for these new believers, remember, what we're, remember at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, hey, remember you reached out to me because you wanted advice as it concerns marriage and singleness. So here's my advice. Now, one of the reasons that they were reaching out to Paul is they wanted some insight as it concerns what to do if you've entered into a marriage relationship and then you've accepted Christ as your savior. Now I'm a Christian, but my spouse is not. What do I do? Should I divorce my unbelieving spouse? If we don't agree on matters of Christ and salvation, won't that make for a really complicated life? Wouldn't it just be easier for me? I mean, this is what I've learned in Corinthian society is that I'm allowed to just divorce or get married as I see fit. And so here we are in church. I'm married. My spouse is not. What do I do about that? It seems inconvenient. Do I just get a divorce? So it was a valid, it was a valid question, wasn't it? It's a fair question coming from these people. 
because they believe that divorce is always an option. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us believe that too. Now let's look at the Bible and divorce. Can we do that? I'm, I'm, really, I'm laying a groundwork and then we're going to get deeper into the passage. So you've got, you've got to stay with me here, okay? Because we're going to move kind of fast. Now I want to say up front, the Bible, the Bible says a lot about marriage and divorce. And there's a lot that the Bible doesn't say about marriage and divorce, all right? And if, you have, if you're interested in the topic this topic of marriage and divorce, I recommend taking the Introduction to Biblical Counseling class that we're going to be offering this fall because it's a topic that gets addressed in that class. Okay, They go pretty in-depth, and I'm not going to have time to do that for you today. Okay, Now, we need to know, just briefly, what does the Bible say about divorce? When is divorce a valid option in God's eyes? Now, let's start with this. God hates divorce. God hates divorce, and it's not a part of his original design for marriage. It's not. It's not what he wanted. In Genesis chapter 2, when we see God give uh, Adam, Eve, it was his intention that they would be together forever. He hates divorce. Look at what Malachi chapter 2 says. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherous, treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? He made, took the two of you and he made you into one. Ye had, uh, uh, yet had he the residue of the spirit and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Okay, that phrase putting away, that's King James uh, English for divorce. He hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that he deal not treacherously. God hates divorce. Why? Because he hates division. He hates divorce because he hates division. Division is always a result of some form of sin within the relationships of God's people. Okay, now divorce, so divorce is the outcome. Divorce isn't, isn't really the problem here, is it? The problem is sin that we allow to creep into relationships that would cause two people who should be one to be divided against one another. That's the real problem. The real problem is sin. God is not saying that divorce itself is wicked. It's the sin which causes the, the, the divorce that's wicked. That's what's wicked. See, God is not clueless. Right? He's not completely oblivious to the problems of the world. He's very familiar with Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He's, he's very familiar with the curse upon men. He's very familiar with our sin. He knows it. God's not clueless. He's made provision for divorce in very specific instances. Now, again, we're not going to get into this as deep as I want, but, but we're going to cover briefly, briefly, the three, the three grounds that the Bible lays out for a divorce. All right? You didn't know you were going to get all this theology today, but you need to hang with me. And this is important information for you to have because so many of us have come in contact with divorce before. This is important information for us to have. So the very first reason that God permits divorce is in the case of abandonment. 
All right? You guys alive? Okay. I heard a yes, sir. I like that. I need more of that. Yes, sir. I like that. Now, if I can just get my kids to say that. God permits divorce in the case of abandonment. The Bible is fairly clear on what is expected in terms of a spousal relationship. So let's start there. Let's start with this idea that there are things that God expects from a marriage. Exodus chapter 21, verse 10 says, If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall not be diminished. And if he do not, these three under her, then shall she go out free without money. So what this is saying, without giving you the entirety of the context, because we don't have time to do it, okay, that it's a man's responsibility to provide his wife with food and raiment and her duty of marriage. It shall not be diminished. Okay, so if that support is diminished because of absenteeism in the relationship, then Paul says that one is permitted to move on. Okay, let's jump ahead in our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. So in the case of a spouse bailing on the other, God permits them to be at peace about moving on. Now, for sake of illustration, I'm going to use my own experience, okay? All right, you guys okay with that? When I was a kid... My parents divorced when I was five. Now, before they got divorced, my mom sought counsel from her pastor about whether or not a divorce would be legitimate, whether or not she had permission from God's word to do it. And the advice at the time was, first of all, God hates divorce because he hates sin and he hates division. Okay, so my mom had to recognize that up front. But the next thing that she had to grapple with was the fact that my dad had abandoned us. He would disappear for weeks on end, all right? And, and he was, the, he was the, the breadwinner in the home. And so he would leave us without groceries. My grandparents had to cover groceries. They would come over and help take care of the kids because my dad was completely absent, all right? He was out, well, drinking and sexing. That's what he was out doing. He was out doing his own thing. He decided... That, it, that his flesh was worth pursuing, and in so doing, he had to abandon his family to make that happen. So that box was checked for my mom. She was being abandoned. She wasn't being provided for. And those things that we read about in Exodus chapter 21, my father was not providing. Okay, so this is not about what God wants. It's about what's permissible. If the relationship in a marriage is irreconcilable. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's, that's one thing. That's one permission that God gives if, if, if someone's being abandoned. Number two, God permits divorce in the case of abuse. So I want to I point this out, that just very logically speaking, that abuse is worse than abandonment, is it not? Because it does not only threaten the well-being of a spouse, but it threatens her very life, or I suppose his life. I think most of us recognize that it's usually men, right, that perform abuse against their family, right? Statistically, we know that. So because it threatens her life, 
The Bible gives provision and space for a divorce. If a, if a person or their children are under the threat of harm, then this is also reason because physical abuse is the ultimate neglect of Exodus chapter 21, right? So if the command for a husband is to perform his duty in marriage, then the most violent act against that is to bring physical harm to his family, right? Yes, just nod your heads, just nod your heads, that'll help me. So a person who's physically abused is a person whose life is at constant risk, is it not? And in this way, the marriage now threatens the victim's ability to serve God because they're in bondage to their abuser. So in the case of of spousal abuse or child abuse, God permits them to escape that situation for the sake of survival, okay? So in order to illustrate this again, I I will use my family as an example. When I was four years old, I saw my dad take my mom's head and put it through a wall, okay? Pretty intense. I saw my dad take furniture and throw it across the room and break things. And in fact, my half-brother, he had his ribs broken by my dad. So my mom, when she went to her pastor, she had to ask questions, right? Because she wanted to obey the Lord in this regard. She, She wanted to do what was right before God. And so the pastor walked her through this concept that if she, her life was, it was being threatened, how would she be able to take care of her children? How would she be able to raise her children in the nurture and admonition in the Lord? And so in order, and for, if she was going to stay in that relationship with my dad, it was going to mean that she would put the rest of the family at risk. And as a Christian, she recognized that that was not Right? So again, I want to point this out to you. It's not what God wants, but it's permissible if the relationship is irreconcilable. Okay, three, God permits divorce in the case of adultery. God permits divorce in the case of adultery. Under Jewish law, adultery was a big deal, and it was punishable by death. So if you were caught in the act of adultery, Old Testament law says they could take you outside and they could stone you. Okay, so divorce itself is slightly less consequential than death, right? (laughs) So what Jesus does is he's going to explain, we're going to see this, he explains this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32. He confirms that adultery is a legitimate reason for divorce. So in the case of cheating, God permits the spouse to divorce because the vow, the vow of marriage itself is being broken, broken, and the spiritual picture has been broken. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but, but God himself divorces Israel, right? Why does he do that? Why does God devo- de- declare divorce against Israel? Because of their idolatry, they went whoring after other gods. They had cheated on him. The nation of Israel was committing adultery against God the Father. And so for that reason, he declares a bill of divorce. Now, I don't know if you've read Hosea. And I don't know if you've read Revelation, how the book ends, because he reunites himself with his bride. It's a beautiful thing. 
And, and sometimes you'll hear of relationships that are broken where there is an ad- adultery in a relationship and a relationship ends in divorce and then people come back together. That's, our, that's the power of our God. Because if a relationship can be reconciled, it should. It should. If God can teach us how to forgive, if God can teach us how to extend grace, if God can, can heal a relationship, we should let him do that. Because God hates divorce. He hates division. So now with all of that as the backdrop, let's consider what Jesus has to say. So let's look at Jesus and divorce. In Jesus' day, there was a fierce debate between the Jewish rabbis surrounding something that we now refer to as no-fault divorce. Okay, so here's a little bit of a history lesson. All right, we've done some math. Now we're doing some history Okay, got got to hang, got to hang with me. Okay, now, what that meant was that these Jewish rabbis, this rabbinical order, was interpreting the Old Testament and its perspective on divorce, and they were applying it in a way that they saw fit. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Talmud, but the Talmud is is a really, really large and organic document. That, that rabbis would contribute to that was their interpretation of what Mosaic, Mosaic law said. And so they would fill this document with all kinds of information about their personal opinions about what divorce meant. And so what they did is they looked at Deuteronomy chapter 24 as their base document and they would use it and abuse it to make divorce what they wanted to. They would massage it. We refer to this as eisegesis, right? Eisegesis. It's a term that describes someone who imposes their will on the word of God. You can make the word of God say whatever you want it to if you're willing to twist it and abuse it in a particular way. So I could, I could come to the word of God and say, I have a preconception. I have a presumption that I want to be true. And I'm gonna justify that by abusing God's word and making it justify what I already believe. That's eisegesis. And that's what the Talmud represents in many, in many ways. And in the Talmud, they had determined, some rabbis had determined that a man could divorce his wife simply for cooking a crummy dinner. That's, how, that's what it had come to. Right? Meatloaf again? I mean, you can imagine. One more crockpot dinner. And I'm done. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day used Deuteronomy 24 as permission for a man to divorce his wife for pretty much any reason at all. So let's read for a second. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. Okay, now that was the path, that's the part that was being abused. Because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write a bill of divorcement and give it, in her, uh, give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it, giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled." 
for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he, uh, he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. Now, this passage uh, represents insight and revelation that God gave to Moses to deal with the reality of sin in the nation of Israel. It was not what God wanted. It was not what he had in mind. God hated the idea that anyone would ever need to be divorced. And what this portion of scripture basically does is it gives a woman who in Jewish culture would have had very few rights, this, this portion of scripture actually gives a woman freedom to remarry if she wanted to, which was a really big deal. And so what we see here is not an expose on what constitutes as reason for a man to divorce his wife. It just simply says how divorce should go down if it has to. But this is the passage which was being abused. Now, let's talk about Jesus. So what we have in Matthew chapter 19, let's go there. Matthew chapter 19 we have some men that come and confront Jesus about this no-fault divorce issue, all right? This idea that shouldn't a man just be able to divorce his wife basically anytime he wants. So verse three, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So the Pharisees were convinced that Moses had commanded a man to divorce or had given man permission to divorce in any case, in any case that he saw fit. And they want Jesus to affirm this no-fault divorce. And he refused to do that. Verse four, and he answered and said unto them, have ye not read? <laughs> I would have to say that that statement represents most people's problems. Have ye not read? I mean, do I have to repeat myself? I mean, God has given us his word for this very reason. So that we would have answers to our problems. And so many people do not want to read the words of God for what they say. Jesus is pointing out a simple truth here. That if we would just read the scriptures, if we would just know his word, it would answer the majority of the problems that we have that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. FYI. He made them, made them, male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus is pointing out to them that when God created marriage, that he created it with permanence. And that there should be a desire in every believer, a heart attitude that says, I want to stay with this person. Now they refute that, okay? Because they like this no fault divorce thing. Verse seven, they said unto him, 
Well, why did Moses, okay, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorce? Okay, now is that a twisting of the truth? Is there a command? It's the wrong word, isn't it? There's no command. Why did then Moses command to give a writing of divorce and to put her away? In other words, well, why did Jesus give us Deuteronomy chapter, or why did God give Moses Deuteronomy chapter 24? Why do we have this option of divorce if we're supposed to stay together? Nasty dudes. Verse 8 is Jesus' response. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. Even though it wasn't of God, he gave you space to do it. Even though that's not what God intended. It is no command. This is not what I want. We suffered it because of the hardness of your hearts. It's your ignorance. It's your naivety. It's your willful sin that brought about this problem. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, there's that adultery thing, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. So Jesus is saying that divorce exists because sin exists. And divorce isn't the ideal. It's, the, it's sometimes the unfortunate reality because of sin, but it's not the ideal. So the disciples hear this. Check this out. The disciples hear Jesus saying all this stuff. And they're saying to themselves, dang. If divorce is not an easy option, and that means we got to stay married, that sounds hard. <laughs> you mean I don't have a chicken exit? You mean I can't just drop her? Chase a plan B? I can't do that? Man, marriage sounds hard. And they're saying to themselves, well, maybe it's just better not to get married. Verse 10, his disciples say unto him, if the case of a man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. <laughs> They're real smart. <laughs> and Jesus is like, yeah, it's tough. Marriage is a commitment that some people are down for and other people aren't. Listen to what he says. But he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying. Save them to whom it is given. Some people will be married and some people won't. And those that do get married, they have to receive this saying. Marriage is hard. And you've got to stay together. You've got to fight for it. You've got to strive to make it work. And listen to me. There's not a, there's not a single relationship that's founded on God's word that can't work. That's important to know. So what we learn in this, in this exchange is that, God, is that Jesus doesn't condemn divorce. He's not condemning this whole no-fault divorce thing. He's condemning a spirit that says, when I don't like something, I simply divorce myself from it and move on. Which, as a culture, we do, not just in marriage, but in almost every aspect of our life. It is very convenient for the people of 2022 when they don't like something or they grow tired of it to walk away. And what God is looking for is a people that are committed 
that even when things are hard, they choose to withstand and to move forward in faith. God wants believers to stay together. Why? Key point, numero uno. That was just the setup, y'all. You got, you had, I felt like you had to know that stuff, right? That's helpful information, isn't it? Okay, but here's the key point. Marriage is a picture of Christ. And his church, his church should not be willfully defrauded. It's a picture of Christ and his church, and it should not be willfully, passively, easily defrauded. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23 tell us about the commitment of marriage and how that commitment of marriage is like the commitment that Jesus Christ makes to his church, his bride. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. And Jesus is committed to us in relationship. Even though we're kind of skanky, aren't we? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. The church doesn't look so hot right now. But Jesus is committed. He's modeling for us what it looks like to be in a committed relationship. And so our committed relationships, our marriages, are a picture type of the ultimate marriage relationship, which is Christ and his church. And and so we should not be so quick to end the relationship of our marriage because it it reflects on Christ. God's will is that people stay together. And this is what the church in Corinth needed to learn. That while there are reasons for divorce, a spirit of uncomplicated, passive, and easy divorce is not God's heart for marriage or life. Now let's look at what Paul has to say about divorce, okay? Ready? Ready? Hunter, you ready, man? You ready? Okay. You look, you look ready. You look ready. Paul and divorce. Let's turn back to our letter. Pick it up in verse 10. In general, Paul's going to tell them that marriage, based on Christ's statements, the ones we just read, is a lifelong commitment. And therefore, those who are married must not be quick to think about separation. Verse 10. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Okay, so he's reminding them that this commandment is not from his authority. This isn't new revelation. This is the revelation that Christ gave us in Matthew chapter 19. This is from the Lord. So not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. And if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his his wife. So Paul says, if you're married, stay married. Don't be in a hurry to find an excuse to get a divorce. When we get married... We have to change how we understand relationships. We have to change the way we understand. The world is telling you that divorce is always an option, but the moment that you get married, you are choosing permanence. You are choosing a lifelong commitment, which is why the vow, at least in every marriage ceremony that I've ever done, demands that the the, the husband and wife promise the following, to love her, to comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, 
in prosperity and adversity and forsaking all others to be to her in all things a true and faithful husband as long as you both shall live. That's why that's in the marriage vows. Because that's what God wants. That's what God wants. So God wants marriages to stay together. Now, let's go back to the problem in Corinth. Let's go back to the problem in Corinth. There were believers, Christians, who were married to people who were not saved. And this leads us to a really important concept that we need to begin with. Some more groundwork here. We need to begin here before we talk about the next thing. Here's the next key point. Do not marry a person who's not saved. For crying out loud. Don't ask for this situation. (laughs) Don't ask for this situation. Don't ask to be unequally yoked. Don't set yourself up for that. You get to make a decision, believer. While you're still single, make the right decision. Don't choose to marry someone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be uh, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? I mean, how are you? You can't have fellowship with someone who doesn't know Christ. And what communion hath light with darkness? You will never be able to have the intimacy with your spouse that you want to if that person does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? This takes it even further. This takes it even a step further. Listen to me, believers. Why would you marry someone who claims to be a Christian and yet on theological issues does not agree with you? If you can't hold the discipleship lessons up and say, do we both agree on this content? then how could you possibly agree to marry that person? Because you are going to walk a certain way. You're going to have a DNA and a ministry philosophy and a missions model and an understanding of God's word that that person can't have or doesn't want. So it goes even further. I mean, how are you going to walk with someone in life if you don't agree about the basic tenets of our faith? Does this make sense? Now, I say this because even in the midst of this ministry, there's, people always are coming to me and saying, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? He's kind of cute. And like, he is cute. <laughs> I, I have to agree. <laughs> but, 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 Has he finished discipleship? Are the four goals a reality in his life? Is he involved in ministry? Do you see in him a desire to see souls saved? Does he have vision for his life? Is Christ his heartbeat? When you converse with him, is it the word of God that's on his lips? Because if he doesn't want those things, then how are you going to walk together? How are you going to walk together? How are you going to have children together? How are you going to raise those kids? 
And like I've said before, I've seen many times people who may have been saved, may have both known Christ, but their lives were on different trajectories, get knocked out of that trajectory, and the remainder of their life was nominal Christianity and pew-sitting. I mean, if they're lucky. So if you want God to derail all the things that he's doing in your life, you should be in a real big hurry to get married to someone who's cute, but doesn't care for the things of God's word. If, if you want to derail your life, that's what you do. Listen to me. As dad, I'm begging you, don't do that. I, I, don't, I don't want to see people make their lives miserable because they made an ignorant decision. I don't, I don't want to watch the people that I care about most in the world. Man, I hear you guys worshiping today. It just destroys me. I had to like compose myself to get in the pulpit. I care for you so deeply. And to, and to watch you because of lust and selfish ambition marry people that aren't right for you, man. It's just devastating. It's a devastating thought. Please be wise about the people that you choose. You guys remember King Solomon, right? The Bible says that, that King Solomon his heart was stolen away by outlandish women. Outlandish. In other words, women that were outside of the land. His heart was stolen away by them. And we know the consequence of that was, was bondage and captivity for the nation of Israel for hundreds of years. The same thing is often true when people compromise by choosing to marry someone they know is not a Christian or someone who isn't agreed on theology or ministry. Be aware, if you aren't getting discipled, and I don't personally see growth in your life, when a girl comes to me and says, what do you think about so-and-so, my response will be, he's cute, but he's not your type. That's what I'm going to say. So be aware. That's my I'm checking everybody. Be aware. I'm going to poo-poo on your parade. And that's for the best of everyone involved. So continuing along here, we've got this unfortunate scenario. Verse 12. But the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, don't get confused here. This is not an excuse for you to dismiss this as what Paul's saying. That's not Revelation. Okay, it'd be really easy for you to read this and say to yourself, oh, well, this is just opinion. This is Paul inserting his opinion. This isn't scriptural. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, now I'm not quoting Jesus anymore. Uh, before I was quoting Jesus, and now I'm not. This is a new revelation. You won't find this anywhere in the scriptures. This is new revelation that God has given me specifically for this moment for the church in Corinth. And he says this, 
If any brother, okay, that's a saved man, hath a wife that believeth not, she's not saved, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman, this is a woman that's saved, which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So imagine for a second a married couple in the streets of Corinth and they're going out on a Sunday stroll, okay, right? And they overhear someone preaching. It's Apollos. He's out on the corner. And he's preaching the gospel of Christ and they step up and they're listening to him because that's what you do in Corinth. You listen to the teachers, right? There's a philosopher on every corner. So they stop to listen. And Apollos preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there's hope for forgiveness. That one can lay hold on eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That he cares for us deeply. That he wants to know us. That he wants to have a relationship with us. And so one of the people in this marriage relationship hears that sermon and they say to themselves, I have to have that. And in that moment, they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but the other spouse has not done that. They walk away just as lost as they were before. That's a tough situation to be in. Now they have a divided home, and they have no answer for how to move forward. Do they get a divorce? Do they separate? See, Paul's message to them was that if the other person, if the lost person was willing to stay with you, you stay with them. And there's a reason for that. Because for every Christian... Every Christian filled with the Spirit of God. There is power in you. There's power in you to do ministry everywhere you go. And Paul's message for the Christians in Corinth was this, key point. A Christian spouse is a spiritual lifeline for their unbelieving companion. They're a spiritual lifeline. That lost person is only connected to Christ relationally through the other person. And if that tie is severed, where does the lifeline go? See, what Paul's saying is that we need to see our marriages as ministry. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. See, remember, this word sanctification, because we've covered this word, it's come up several times in this book. The word sanctification means to be set apart for holiness, for the work of holiness. It means to be set apart. Now, this is not some sort of special power that a wife has over her unbelieving husband to just simply save the house, like mystically. Like everyone said, because I'm saved and I live here, everyone is now saved. We know that's not how salvation works. Salvation is an individual decision. Now what this is saying is that a wife's decision to remain with her unbelieving husband is her power to see her whole house set apart that God might do a work in their midst. See, God's desire, as long as that marriage is able to stay together, he wants to use the believer in that relationship 
to minister truth to everyone in the house. He wants that person to be a blessing. See, there are many stories in our church where a spouse followed Christ diligently and consistently, sometimes for many, many years. And because of his faithfulness or her faithfulness, God used that individual and their perseverance in the faith to draw their spouse to Christ. We've got stories like that right here in our church. God loves to do that. God loves to do that, that work. So I, I, want, I want to acknowledge the fact that what I'm suggesting isn't easy. Okay, so we have a handful of married couples in this ministry. But we have a lot of married couples in this church. And a lot of you will be married one day. And these principles are, are critical for survival, particularly when, when your spouse is in a wilderness place. You know, even if they are saved, but they're not following Christ the way that they should, something derails them, and suddenly they find themselves not living, living a Christian life the way that they ought to. You don't see growth in them anymore. You don't see that vibrancy. The zeal is dead, and you're the lone individual left to follow Christ in the marriage. It's a difficult situation. It is not ideal. But we don't always work with ideals, do we? Life can be complicated and it can be messy. So what do you do in these instances? Well, let's look at some principles. We're going to look at a few principles for how to live a life in relationship with someone who does not believe the way you do or is not living according to Christ. The very first thing is this idea that there's power in love. There's power in love. There's power in it. Romans 12, 10 says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. You ought to prefer your spouse over yourself. You ought to put them first. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to be that kind of loving individual, there's going to be power. There's going to be power. God will use you. Another thing you need to know is that you need to love your home and you need to play your part according to Ephesians chapter five. So it's, it's one thing, it's one thing to be loving and to prefer others over yourself and to put your spouse over yourself and model the love of Christ for them. It's a whole other thing to determine in your heart that you're gonna live out the responsibilities that God's given you as a spouse. Ephesians chapter five tells us very specifically what the role of a husband ought to be and what the role of a wife ought to be. And despite the fact that your, your, your counterpart is not doing what's right and maybe they're not fulfilling their role, it does not change the fact that you're called to be obedient to God. And it is your responsibility to live out what Christ has asked you to live out. Does that make sense? So play the role of a wife or play the role of a husband according to scripture. If you're a husband, be a provider, be a protector, be gentle, be sacrificial, be the leader that God has made you to be, and your wife will respond to that. And if you're a wife to an unsaved husband, be a keeper of the home, provide and love unconditionally, be the leader that God's made you to be. You have influence. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 3 says to the wife in a situation like this. Verse 1, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That if, and that's particularly difficult when you do not agree with them, isn't it? 
be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, which means lifestyle of the wives, while the, they behold your chaste conversation or lifestyle coupled with fear. In other words, when someone bears witness to the love of Christ being lived out in you, they can't, it's not any different than it is with the lost world, right? When they see those things time and time and time again, they see that sacrificial love and they see you preferring them over yourself and they see your diligence towards them in love, there's power in it. You gotta use it. Next, the power of consistency. The power of consistency. Now, consistently, what I mean by that is consistently displaying what you believe to be true. Consistently displaying or modeling what you believe to be true. And this requires preferring God over your spouse. Okay, so in the other instance, in the, in the instance of love, you're preferring your spouse over you. But your spouse is not God, and there are times in which you've got to prefer God over your spouse, and you've got to, you've got to model obedience to God over everything else. He becomes the priority. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So if it's between you and your spouse, right? If it's between, I'm sorry, if it's between God and your spouse, and what your spouse is asking you to do is disobedient to, to God, then you obey God rather than men. Now, you're not gonna run into that a lot of times, but you might. And it's important to remember this principle that we've got to obey God rather than men. In what ways? In the word of God, the study of his word, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. In prayer, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. They should see you studying your word and praying. They should see that in your lifestyle. They should see it in your church attendance, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And they should see it in your ministry, 2 Timothy Four or five, they should see it. They should see you modeling truth. They should see your consistency. Day after day, year after year, they should see it. And it will be a testimony to them to the truth of what you believe. Three, the power of patience. The power of patience. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and what? Be patient toward all men. If you're married to someone who doesn't follow Christ, you need to do all you know how to be patient with them and honor the promise that you made to them in your wedding vows. I know it's hard. I know it might take time. But be of good courage. You have a God that walks with you and loves you. Okay, now... I understand uh, that a lot of you aren't in this situation. This is a ministry made up of primarily single people, and then the majority of the marriages in here are, uh, are very healthy, which I'm, I'm thankful for. But there's things that we need to remember in terms of principle here that I think all of us can apply, and that's this. Remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. What's your purpose in life? Jump down to verse 16 real quick. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And here's our key point, and this is what we need to learn. 
Our perspective must be that our family is our ministry. Our family is our ministry, whether you're, say, or whether you're married or not, right? Whether you're married or not, it doesn't matter. Your family is your ministry, and it requires patience, and it requires the power of love, and it requires the power of consistency, and it requires the power of patience in our lives in order to see God use us to draw our family to God. It's going to require those things. And look, you don't know the outcomes. That's what this pastor says. You don't know whether or not your husband will get saved. You don't know whether or not your wife gets saved. But on an outside chance that they might, you be who you're supposed to be. It's not for you to determine, oh, it's hopeless, done, writing them off, not going how I want, not talking to mom anymore, not talking to dad anymore, not talking to my siblings anymore. They're hopeless. It's over. Ah, you don't know. And what you don't know, you shouldn't live according to. You shouldn't bet on hopelessness. And as we're going to learn in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and 14, listen to me. Hope is everything. And love produces hope. It produces hope. So don't bet on hopelessness. Bet on God. Because there's a chance. There's always a chance. There's always a hope. See, our perspective must be that our family is ministry and we must live according to that. Now, look at verse 15. You need to also remember your peace. Remember, remember peace. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. So if he abandons you, if he chooses to leave you, let him go. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Do not, don't initiate separation. Don't initiate it. But in the case that a person you're married to says they no longer want to be with you, maybe they don't want, maybe they don't, they don't want the baggage of your faith anymore or whatever, and they choose to leave, you have the freedom to be at peace. Now, let's apply this principle more broadly. When you're ministering to a person who rejects that ministry, remember peace. When you're investing in a friend or a family member who maybe it's their choice, choice to divorce you in the relationship, a friend from high school, a friend from college, someone you work with, you've been ministering to them for a while, but they no longer want to hear it. And they walk away. Be at peace. You can only control what you can control. Your job is to obey God, not men. Okay, so this was a weird sermon. Okay? Because so much of these are truths that I think that I think do apply to everybody. But it's very specific, isn't it? In some ways, it's a very specific. It's a very specific person that this portion of the letter was to. So I want to I say a couple things, okay, as we close. And uh, Harrison, you can come up, man. I think that there's still an invitation to be, to be had, all right? Now, first of all, I want to say this. If you're a person who's in one of these situations where you're saved and your spouse is not following Christ, maybe they're not saved or they're just not doing what's right, come get prayer. Come get counsel. 
Come talk to somebody about it. We want, we want what you want. We want to see them following Christ. So come get some counsel, get some prayer. God could do awesome things. The other thing I want to point out and I want to ask in terms of invitation is that if you are that spouse or you are that boyfriend or girlfriend who hasn't been following Christ and you've been a, you've been a poor example, you haven't been a leader, maybe you don't know Jesus at all, maybe you've never given your life to him or, or maybe you've just neglected him. Come forward. Come set that right. And as much joy as that might bring your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, forget that. The angels in heaven will rejoice. The God of all creation desires that you follow him more than any other person could possibly desire it. He desires it. He wants you to be discipled. He wants to make you a fisher of men. He wants to change your life. He wants to deal with your sin issue because he cares for you. He sent his very son to die for you. So if that's you today, if you know something's not right, come forward. And this is the third thing. This is the last thing. If you need counseling, if your relationship is in a place whether it's a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, it's in a place that you don't know what the next steps are, come get counseling. We will open God's word and we will consider the principles therein and we'll pray about what to do. But this is a family. This is a family. And we do family together. Don't isolate yourself. Don't, don't go it alone. We need each other. And so let's, let's pursue, pursue that Knowing, knowing that it's good for us. You guys with me? First Corinthians chapter 7, huh? It's a weird one. It's a weird one. And I have to admit, I don't, I don't always know how to preach it. I don't really know what to do. But I hope it's, it's been beneficial so far. Let's make use of it. If you have a decision to make today, let's make that decision, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we're grateful for you. And I'll, I'll say, Lord, I don't know. It's hard for me to get in the mind of every person in here. I, I don't know every situation. But Lord, I pray that you would be at work and that, Lord, if someone needs to make a decision right now based on what we talked about, Lord, would you provoke them? Would you push them? Would you draw them out of their seat and help them to find a voice of counsel? Lord, we trust you with this work. You are a good God. You, you would that all men be saved. It's your will. So help us, God. Help us in that work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.